0: I'm here with Matthew and Kyle. We're kicking off our second episode of Cleantech Talk, where we focus on the hottest electric car, solar energy, wind energy, energy efficiency news of the week. And this, you know, we're focusing more on electric cars because this is the hottest cleantech market at the moment. Today, the three hot stories that we're discussing are Matthew's study and story about Tesla drivetrains, Ford investing $4.5 billion in electric cars, electric car batteries, And the idea that we already have the technology we need to solve climate change, what we need is a deployment bouncing off of an article by Jigar Shah. Matthew, kick us off with your story.
1: Sure, and I guess this is the segment where I explain to listeners that I'm not some sort of horrible Koch brothers uh, ogre. I'll outline the background of the story here about the finding from uh, some plug-in America data that probably two thirds of the earliest Tesla Model S drivetrains—the 2012, 2013 model years—that uh, those would be likely to fail in 60,000 miles. I'll give a bit of thoughts about that. And then I'll suggest there's a free economics kind of a twist to the story, which would be unexpected, but most likely you know pleasant for Tesla supporters. And so to give some background, the idea for the article came earlier this year when Consumer Reports dropped the Model S from its recommended vehicle list, said it had below average reliability, despite the P85D scoring a better than perfect 103 out of 100 in their road tests. And Elon Musk had tweeted, and I think Tesla had put out some information subsequently saying, you know, there were some known problems in older vehicles, and those had long since been resolved. Being a data kind of a guy, I was curious to see if we could track that kind of improvement, and so I was able to find this plug-in America data, and almost 400 Model S owners had filled the survey in, but unfortunately there wasn't that much data for 2014s and 2015s, so instead of a title like, you know, Quantum Leap in Tesla Quality over the years, the headline became sort of two-thirds of earliest Tesla drivetrains will need to be replaced in about 60,000 miles. When the article came out, there was a lot of pushback from advocates who thought this was a FUD piece, a fear, uncertainty, doubt hit piece. And it wasn't, but I was actually happy to take the friendly fire because, and I'm sure you'll be more familiar with this, Zachary, in cleantech, we're probably going to see more and more desperate fossil fuel FUD in the coming years. And so we want our commenters all alert to hit back hard whenever we see some garbage, uh, improperly interpreted data that we need to rebut. Going on to the actual stats... Two-thirds of the early vehicle's odors being swapped out in about 60,000 miles isn't great. Not all that good. But it is Tesla's first kick at the can. And it's worth remembering that although Toyota is lauded today for having you know, laudable quality, their quality was actually pretty laughable when they started. Saying car had Japanese-style quality used to be an insult, not a compliment. And for the company, their gross margins per vehicle should give it a great financial buffer. And of course, there's no doubt that Tesla has resolved the issues by now. Turning to the economics twist on this is that, surprisingly, Tesla supporters will probably want to hope those statistics are correct, that the drivetrain was a little bit prone to failure early on. And by corollary, Tesla's haters will probably want to hope that the reliability was actually pretty good. And the way that works is that... A number of commenters in various forums and various article writers have noted that Tesla's service center wait times have increased recently, which is understandable because there are proportionally more Tesla vehicles per service center. And that could mean that Tesla's underestimated what needs to spend on deployment of service centers. Not a big deal because Elon could probably raise a billion dollars at a dinner party, but it would be a bit of a distraction. Now, Tesla fans would actually want to hope that this particular failure mode was reasonably prevalent, that there was an Achilles heel, perhaps, for this one particular component, because that would mean that if these service center visits are dominated by people requiring this motor swap, then wait times will start to decrease once Tesla's gone through the pig in the python, this one little slug of weaker components that get replaced by the redesigned ones. As a result, you'd expect that after this little interruption, maybe it spans a few months or something, smooth sailing for Tesla and, you know, continued customer satisfaction in the very high 90s, establishing further records for length of customer satisfaction and so forth. On the other hand, if the data that Plugin America collected vastly overestimated the number of problems, and if quality has been reasonably okay for all of the components, that would mean Tesla's underestimated how many service centers it needs and will actually need to really ramp up the build-out of those in order to keep customer wait times down, keep satisfaction high. And that would mean that problems would be likely to get worse before they get better in terms of this wait time, because it does take time to train up new people, to buy new facilities, and so on and so forth. And if that takes too long, that could actually hit customer satisfaction metrics and cause the brand to lose a bit of its luster. So that's basically the Freakonomics take on why you know, the haters should actually hope that the early data that we've seen is overblown, whereas Tesla supporters and proponents, in a very weird way, would actually probably prefer it if this data was correct, you know, given that, as I think we can all safely assume, the problem is well under control at this stage and has been designed out. Kyle, I don't know if you want to comment given your household having a pair of electric vehicles of your own. Yeah, for sure. We actually have a Tesla drivetrain
2: in our Mercedes B class electric. And we've had a few little updates that were required for that. You blasted a lot of information out about the article right now. And I think it was a really interesting article. I think your analysis was really, really solid. But I think like you mentioned, there's an obvious bias built into the respondents in that survey to plug in America there. So I think that's challenging to put a lot of credibility behind, especially when you scale it up to, you know, the full amount of of Model S's out there. So I think that was a little bit tough for me to swallow. And I think, I'm in the same pool. Like I hope that there were some early issues with the Model S that have been worked out. And I know Zach's got some information on that, which he can dig into um, in a minute here. But I think with the service centers, that one's a little tough for me to wrap my mind around without more data specifically about what folks are going to those service centers for. I know there's an annual service for Teslas. It's not required to maintain the warranty, like a lot of dealerships will do in the, the traditional dealership model, if you will. Specifically for this survey and the analysis, I'm not clear on the analysis. Method and whether that was designed specifically for internal combustion vehicles. They are more complex. They have something like 650 components in the drivetrain, whereas an electric vehicle, you only have a handful. And so a single failure or a single issue in an electric vehicle could cause the entire drivetrain to fail. So it is more critical that we identify those early and replace them, which is what it sounds like Tesla did. But similarly, electric vehicles, because they are more simple, it's a lot easier to swap out a motor. There's not a full engine built around it, it's not surrounded, all these other things bolted on like a gas engine will have. And so I think it would be a lot easier to swap out that full motor than it would to change like a water pump or a bearing in an internal combustion vehicle. I would want to drill into to that. Uh, but my overall take on it, I think it was an interesting angle on what's there. But for me, I'm not sold on two thirds of all the vehicles are going to fail within 60,000 miles. Uh, definitely want to see some more data and hoping that Tesla will release that. And I know you were pushing them to get some input for the article. Zach, do you want to talk a little bit more about the specifics on the motor? I know you've done quite a bit of digging on that.
0: Yeah, well, I think there are obvious limitations with the methodology because, you know, there's the self-selection, self-bias issue. I don't really know how Plug-in America conducted that, but based on what I follow in the industry, I would guess that a lot of people who had issues knew about the survey, whereas a lot of people who didn't didn't know about the survey. So that's going to create skewed results, which immediately make the findings insignificant statistically, right. scientifically. I think you pulled it out, and I think there was a challenge with the headline. I know how it is the to write a headline. Got,
1: uh, yeah, the headline did cause some grief because, wearing my engineering hat, I interpreted the meaning of failure different from what your colloquial, you know, web browser would. So yeah, and uh, I mean that was. That was unfortunate.
0: That's been a point of long debate on the Tesla Motors Club forum, whether to call them failures or not. But that, that brings to the other points I wanted to focus on, which is basically that, I mean, some of Tesla's strongest points are what make this story seem so bad, because basically they've been extremely proactive. So yeah. in this, you know... The, the debate with the failure, part of it is that Tesla basically identified some issues that they had, and they just anytime someone came in who had that drive unit, they replaced it proactively. So they weren't even having problems on a lot of drive units where they just said, "Oh, your drive unit, we're just going to swap it out." And I think part of what they were doing also was trying to nail down specifically what <coughs> the issue were. So, so they wanted to take in as many of these drive units as possible to see, okay, did this drive unit have the problem? Did this one not have it? you know, what was causing the problem? So I think it's a proactive approach and it's it's a really focused approach on on nailing down what the issue is sort of bite it in the in the butt in this case when you just look at the data not in actual real life and it was quite simple for them to just take the motor out you know look at it and then they end up putting it in another car yep. and then also I read through a lot of the comments on your article which provided me with some interesting things to talk about one was this noise if a normal ice car gasoline car had such a noise appear, you know, the manufacturer most certainly would not replace anything for you. (laughs) It would would just just be like, hey, this is what happened. Sorry. And also because they're noisier, the driver probably wouldn't even notice the noise. So um, because, you know, gas cars just make more noise. So I think that, again, is a positive feature of Tesla that ends up looking like a strike because um, they're they're replacing and I think there was one comment on your site there that said that this was an issue they had with Tesla, that they wished Tesla wouldn't, or maybe it was on the forum, I don't know, but they wished that Tesla wouldn't mm-hmm. respond to customers so... Generously. Proactively, really, yes. Yeah, and would just say, like, look, you have to live with it, um, because it puts a lot of challenge on a growing startup. But getting to the specifics, this issue has come up on a number of conference calls, and Elon has been really specific about the issues. So with the really early cars, there was, like, loose wiring, and they just... You know they they were they were new to the business and they had loose wiring and they they realized okay, we have to fix this. They had noise due to improper lubrication in the bearings, which basically this was like really minute difference in how much lubrication they put in, but they just realized that they had to put a little bit more like a really <laughs> it's it's it seems ridiculous, but um they just had to put like a had to set the automatic filler for. Because originally they were doing them manually, and then they switched to automatically, and they just had like a tiny bit too little, so they realized they had to put more in. And I think that was one of the cases where they just took all of the drive units that were in that series and they replaced them so they could put more lube in. And then the improper gear shim was... uh, something with a few thousand uh, units where they replaced. But, I mean, in the end, it comes down to, I think, what Kyle said. Can we extrapolate from these? I, I tend to think we can't. I think they're very specific issues that Tesla identified and fixed as soon as possible. On the other hand, I mean, they are growing pains from Tesla being new to this business and just learning things. And, you know, the question is, how many things are there like this where Tesla has a small problem because they're new to it? And, you know, how many cars will this really affect? Is this why there's overload at the service centers right now? Because there are a lot of little issues that people need fixed. I don't know. I mean, it's still an interesting ongoing topic. The headline is jarring, especially when it gets picked up by big media outlets who don't understand the context. But... um yeah.
1: Yeah. So I am in touch with uh, Tom Saxton, chief science officer for Plug in America. He was quite intrigued by the data, and they had another fifty owners submit their, their information, and, a, and a, a large number of owners update their information, which is very cool. He's uh, happily crunching the data right now. One point: it is a risk that there's selection bias in terms of the users who did submit uh, information. It is perhaps worth noting that almost no one, I think it'd be like less than a percent, uh, reported any issues with their Tesla batteries, which are, I guess, metaphorically uh, bulletproof, maybe even physically bulletproof with a titanium shield. And uh, as well, there were a bunch of about 500 LEAF respondents, and uh, maybe a percent of those guys had also reported issues with their batteries. Nonetheless, it is early data and... I'm looking forward to being able to, I guess, redeem myself in the eyes of many by having that second article, which can say when the data comes in, you know, from 2013 to 2014, Tesla problems for this particular component have dropped, you know, 50% or 80% or whatever the number may be. I'll keep you guys posted uh, as to how that develops.
0: Yeah, I mean, you could do a piece on the batteries. I mean, that's, that is interesting because that's the piece of the electric car that people are most concerned about not doing right. well. So I think yes. that's really positive Yeah, positive I'll be trying feedback. to loop that in for sure, yeah. Well, uh, we can move on now to Ford, I think, unless you have any last words, Kyle.
2: I think that's, like we, we all talked, it's a really interesting analysis. Um, what I'm hoping coming out of this is that maybe that article and the attention that it gathered uh, would be enough to, to create a stir within Tesla, And in the spirit of openness, you know, share some of their service data and warranty data. I think that would really help clear the air on this.
0: Yeah, and I guess one final, (laughs) I wasn't supposed to, but one final point that someone brought up there's specific, you know, in the quarterly financial filings, Tesla has increased the amount of money it's set aside for warranty costs. So I think they pretty much nailed down more or less what it was going to cost them to deal with these initial issues. And as, as long as nothing is out there that they're not aware of, they've already taken, put money aside to deal with The costs of that. So I think that's something to know as well. But let's go ahead with Ford. Um, Kyle. You can start us off on Ford.
2: Yeah, Ford made a big announcement just this last week, announcing that they're going to be pouring $4.5 billion into the electrification of their current vehicle line. So specifically, they're going to be adding 13 new plug-in vehicles to the Ford stable, if you will, right in the pony car theme, uh, by the end of the decade, which will bring electrified versions of their uh, fleet to about 40% of all the Ford vehicles that are out there. So that's just huge news, both in terms of the dollar amount that they're pouring into that, but also, I mean, that's going to make a huge Mark, on really the core of U.S. auto sales, Ford is one of those brands that are known for trucks, they're known for workhorse SUVs, and a statement like this, financially, just pouring a ton of money into the electrification of that fleet is really exciting to me. And then on top of that, there were two updates that I think might even be, maybe they're not more exciting, but just because they're more tangible, pretty exciting. Ford announced extending the range on their Ford Focus Electric. Uh, to about 100 miles and they're adding uh, much needed fast charging i've driven the ford focus electric it's a, it's a fun car to drive it actually feels really solid and it's gotten a lot of positive acclaim for the drivability and the actual the handling of the car people like the car itself but it's had a couple limiting factors the the number one being the range of about 72 miles um, i recommended a friend of mine purchased this he had some sizable rebates from his employer Specifically with Ford for the uh, the Focus Electric, and so my two points for him were: hey, it's a range limited car, so you only have 72 miles, which is really below the standard for, for the current generation of available vehicles in that price range of about 85 miles. Um, and then the lack of fast charging. I don't think that's a showstopper for somebody who's just using it to commute to work and back. But for my wife and I, I mean, we've kind of li- we've really lived through that, where our Mercedes B Class Electric doesn't have fast charging, but actually has a very inefficient rate of consumption of the battery. And so it's not really something you can take on a full day trip out and come back without needing a full four or five hours or or more of charging at level two whereas our Leaf goes the other direction it's a more efficient car faster to charge in terms of uh, how much range per hour that it can add and it has fast charging so it's a bit more flexible and so these additions to the Focus Electric really get it back up to what I would call kind of the current baseline for electric vehicles that are out there but personally I was really expecting 200 mile EV from them and, and so it feels like they've hopped up with the uh, the new Nissan Leaf 2016 with the 30 kilowatt hour pack they've hopped up to kind of that level with the 100 mile threshold which is great but it doesn't feel like enough to to me, I mean, in just a few weeks here at CES, GM is going to announce. We expect them to announce the production version of the the Chevy Bolt with a B, a B as in boy. Um, <laughs> we should we should clarify. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's right. Yeah,
0: not a V as in. <laughs> Uh, violin, right?
2: Not to be confused with the Volt, but that that's expected to have about 200 miles of range. And well, I think it was a really exciting announcement from Ford. I'm pumped about what they're bringing. And like I said, I, I will actually be talking with them at CES. And we're going to be seeing hopefully their new mystery that they're announcing in Detroit. But I'll leave that to somebody else to dig into. Zach, you want to dive into something with the Ford announcement?
0: Yeah, there's really two specific points that are really exciting to me. And it's about a broader point. I mean, I think the three of us and many people, we see the future of cars as electric, but there's still the majority of the population that doesn't even know about them or doesn't know what they are, really. And there's a a huge percentage of the auto industry that doesn't see that they're the future yet. And we've had some really strong announcements from BMW about it electrifying all of its models. Volkswagen has recently announced that it's going to electrify all of its models by 2019. Those are really big statements. GM has come out with a long-range bolt, so that's, that's really a, a, a big statement from GM. But there's still several big manufacturers that haven't made it clear that they think EVs are the future. And Ford was one of those. I mean, Ford was like, you know, just basically modifying gas vehicles as electric vehicles. But now, saying that they're putting $4.5 billion, with a B as in boy, uh, not billion like violin, <laughs> no, uh Four point four point five billion dollars is a huge investment, and that to me immediately says, okay, Ford thinks the future is electric, at least to some significant percentage. Uh, so they want to be they want to become leaders in batteries and EVs. That's a, that's a big statement from a huge manufacturer. And then second, that they're going to electrify forty percent of their of their models is again one of those huge statements that I think should wake anyone up and say, wow. If BMW and Volkswagen are electrifying all of their models, Nissan thinks EVs so the future is going to electrify half of its models. Obviously, this is the direction we're going in, right? So I still feel like Ford is being pushed by regulation and they're, they're treating it more of a compliance, like they have to comply with the regulations. But at least they've gotten to the point where they said, OK, there's no turning back. We have to we have to do this hardcore if we're going to remain relevant. So that's what's exciting to me and then also the um, it's interesting to see that they have a plug-in uh, SUV they're launching but I'll let I'll let you guys talk about that.
1: Sure. I guess for me the most exciting part of of this is that as you mentioned, you know with VW and BMW saying that they're going to have plug-in options on all their models. And with Ford here even Ford, which is sort of a more uh, working class kind of vehicle as opposed to well, especially as opposed to BMW. If 40% of Ford's models have plug-in options, then there's got to be a tipping point somewhere where sales staff at dealerships will have to bother learning about them and learning how to sell them. So that, to me, is the most encouraging aspect. Certainly, it does cost a lot of money to develop a new vehicle. I think it's, I've read it starts perhaps at a billion dollars. So four and a half billion, maybe take out some for fast charging and infrastructure, that's still four billion dollars. The very cool thing is that right now, you know, sales staff at a lot of dealerships, because they make most of their sale again vehicle, will only have one. Or maybe a couple models which are never in stock and so on and so forth. So I think, uh, I guess I'm most eager to see as the next few years go by, whether as CleanTechnica has documented, you know, it kind of sucks to try and buy an electric vehicle from a car dealership. Maybe there'll be some sort of tipping point where there are enough models with plug options available that suddenly, you know, the sales staff kind of wake up and say, hey, you know, we can actually make good commissions on selling these vehicles as well. Kyle, any other thoughts? I think that's a really great point.
2: I myself have gone to a lot of dealerships here in Southern California from Chevy dealerships, Ford dealerships, Nissan dealerships, Honda even for their fit, which you can lease here. And just across the board, with the one exception being BMW, who does seem to have very educated sales staff, I'm just underwhelmed by not just the lack of knowledge of the vehicles, but just the complete lack of willingness to even sell the vehicle. They're not trying to push it. They want to go with what they know instead of what I'm even coming in asking for. So I think that's a huge point that with this. a significant percentage of Ford vehicles, maybe not being fully electric, but at least having an electric drivetrain option like we're seeing with the Ford Fusion and the C Max, where you can get the energy version which is the the plug-in hybrid version you can get a hybrid traditional hybrid with no plug-in and you can also get the full gas version I think that push for electrification is kind of like the gateway to electric cars and that's exciting to me that they will be training their folks up for that's a, a great angle and a great piece of this that I hadn't thought of we talked a little bit about the new plug-in that Ford is bringing to the North America International Auto Show and i have got the teaser photos and the teaser video even that Ford shared with us in the article on the site and that to me is really neat it It looks like a pretty aggressive postured uh, SUV to me, really low, kind of reminds me of like the BMW X6. I was a little bit bummed when they showed the charging port because it is only a J1772, which to me means no fast charging, which also means it's not just an electric vehicle. So I definitely lean towards the plug-in hybrid for that new announcement they're going to be showing off on January 11th there in Detroit. A little bit of a bummer, but along the same lines what we talked, it's a good step in the right direction, and with Ford being such a big brand, I can't wait to see what that looks like and how consumers respond, especially announcing it in Detroit, which is like the hub of American auto manufacturing, or at least it is to I'm expecting a shift to Nevada and California, as we're seeing with uh, Tesla and Faraday Future. Ford is is actually actively working to get developers to develop apps for the car, which I'm personally not a big fan of. I think it would be neat to have the car have a certain suite of functionality in built-in apps, but I don't really want developers to be able to develop for my car and have users browsing through like a Ford app store. That doesn't feel like a good blend there. But I'm excited to see what they're going to do with that. There were some neat ideas like parking spot finders leveraging data aggregation for parking spot finding. So if Zach had already driven by, you know, Main Street and his car detected that there were three open spots, you know, three minutes ago, I can have a reasonable assumption that one of those will be open and my car will be able to use cloud data um, sourced from other vehicles that are similarly enabled to find spots. So I thought that was a neat angle and I'm I'm excited to see what what Ford does with that. Um, Zach, you want to close this one off?
0: Yeah, well, I was just going to bring up, I mean, Ford, nobody really talks in a a real enthusiastic way about Ford's EV approach, because it's not a very inspiring one, because they basically have just been slightly modifying gas cars to be EVs, and in some ways making pretty uh, disappointing compromises with trunk space or seating space. So that's what they did with Ford Focus Electric, the Ford Fusion Energy, the Ford C-Max Energy, and I think that's turned a lot of EV writers off to Ford, on the other hand, it's a somewhat sensible approach, and, they, and there's certain aspects of it that are really sensible, because you know, if they don't feel like uh, long-range affordable electric cars that are really competitive are available yet, and nobody really does because there aren't any available, Tesla's planning one in two years, GM next year, then a small step approach to getting into the market makes sense. And in their case, they have the production of all these vehicles happening on the same lines, same production lines which allows them to produce a lot more, which allows them to, to make the vehicles uh, available to match demand, not just uh, whatever they, they feel like producing, which also allows them to sell them more widely. So whereas people might prefer the Volkswagen Eagle or the Kia Soul EV, these cars are really limited, the, the markets that they're in, and Ford has made their models available like nationwide. So in places where you can't get a, a lot of electric cars, you can still get a Ford Electric. So I think that's a positive thing. And if you add up the Ford C-Max Energy and the Ford Fusion Energy sales, they're quite similar vehicles in a lot of respects. They would actually be the third top-selling EV in the U.S. this year behind only Tesla and Nissan. So so there's something to be said for their sort of sensible, cautious, but still open approach versus the compliance car approach that, I guess, a different compliance car approach that others have had. But anyway, that's enough with Ford. I'm I'm happy to see that they look to get really serious about them. I'm happy to see that they're going to announce another plug-in vehicle that they will probably sell nationwide and will sell pretty well, even if it's a limited range plug-in hybrid. The last story, so during the climate, during the the COP21 in Paris, the big climate conference, Bill Gates... Uh, And then separately, James Hansen, a leading climate scientist, former head of climate science at NASA, they came out with a push for nuclear and breakthrough energy solutions. Like we basically arguing that we don't have the solutions yet. We need breakthroughs in energy. And that really ticked off a lot of people in the solar and wind industry because we do have the solutions. We have we have solar, you know, we have study after study that, that have shown that we can power the world with at least 70 or 80 percent renewable energy, but some studies have found 100 percent. Some researchers based out of Stanford, Mark Z. Jacobson, who's a leading researcher on renewable energy, they've investigated the 15-minute by 15-minute electricity demands needs of every state in the United States and over 100 countries. They've laid out how each of these places can use different renewable energy resources to reach 100 percent renewable energy using current technology, so not even using new technologies that will be developed next year. So that's showing that it's possible, despite what Bill Gates and James Hansen have argued. And then secondly, the bigger piece of that, I think, is that solar and wind have become the most cost-competitive options in a lot of cases. So If you look at levelized cost of electricity from various sources, wind is the cheapest uh, on average, only trailing energy efficiency if you want to count that. And solar is cheaper than natural gas and coal and nuclear in in a lot of cases, in most cases. So utility-scale solar. So we already have solar and wind being cheaper in in most places i think and also capable of you know providing electricity for almost all of our needs if not all of our needs uh, combined with uh, other renewable resources like hydro geothermal biomass and perhaps a bit of storage so that's the general story jigger shaw who's founded sun edison he's a leader in the solar energy industry wrote an epic piece countering bill gates on linkedin and he asked us to repost it on clean technica which we did we got a lot, of, a lot of traffic. It's just sad to see that a lot of people still don't realize that solar and wind are so cheap and that they're competitive. And uh, my last words on that, in the United States, about 70% of new electricity generation capacity this year has come from renewables. So they're already dominating new capacity growth. The thing is, it takes a long time to replace the, the large electric power plant network. So it's going to take time to change the generation profile. But they're already the leaders in new capacity in a lot of markets. But that's my final word. I'll let you guys close.
2: Kyle, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, definitely. As far as this article, this one really jumped out at me. I'm a fan of doing versus talking action versus, uh, I guess in this case, it's research. And I don't want to pin a bad name on, on research. But I think historically, the federal government has really attempted to catalyze forward progress or new technologies by dumping tons of money into R&D, which has been great. I mean, it's served us well up until this point. But I think now we are at a point, specifically with these clean technologies, wind and solar, that it's commercially viable today. It can scale up today based on current technology. I mean, you can use these technologies at the commercial level. You can use them at... Utility scale, you can use them residentially. A lot of folks are putting solar panels on their RVs because it makes more financial sense than uh, the generators that they typically run. So I'm just I'm I'm really excited about this push and the counter to the call from Bill Gates and the folks on the Breakthrough Energy Coalition to uh, to invest more in R&D. And Jigar is really pushing here for action, specifically in light of the uh, the Paris talks. And he's saying that, quote, what we need is development from India to Kenya to Brazil. We need to put people to work, to market, build and sell this infrastructure. According to Bloomberg, McKinsey and the International Energy Agency, the cost of reaching this goal is about $10 trillion, a shift of less than 25% of the money we're going to spend on relevant infrastructure anyway, end quote. So, I think that really speaks to like what you mentioned, Zach, it's going to take a lot of time to shift both the funds and just to build this infrastructure from the ground up. But we have the technology. And so I think the key message for me in this article and in this push and coming out of COP21 in Paris really is we need action now. Yeah, I thought this was hugely inspiring um, and it ties into to cars as well. I'll give it back to you, Matthew, if you want to share your perspective on it.
1: Sure, I guess, uh, and I can I can ruefully say this, having been in that industry. But if if research gave you commercialization, then everyone would actually be driving fuel cell cars by this point. Uh, but of course, it's not research; it's deployment, as Jigger has mentioned, and as uh, as Zachary has uh, reaffirmed here. I think there might be a blind spot in terms of software guys. Who think about energy systems, and there are a lot of guys on this, uh, this dream team here. Scanning through the list, I saw the founders or co founders of Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Salesforce.com, LinkedIn, Sun Microsystems, SAP, and SoftBank. And the beauty of software is that software can scale infinitely fast because it runs on legacy hardware that's already out there, you know, the more than a billion computers, phones, tablets that we've got in the world. But to generate clean energy, you need to build that new hardware. And hardware just doesn't scale the same way as software does. You have to, year after year, continue to drive down costs. I think the solar version is called Swanson's Law, I think. There are these learning curves for virtually every industry. I guess one other point, and again speaking to the cost items that Zachary had mentioned, was that because all of these existing technologies, solar, wind especially, are improving in cost every year, By the time the future technologies that Bill Gates wants to help, you know, commercialize are ready, the costs for solar and wind will be all that much cheaper. Just looking at nuclear fusion, I I do know some folks who work at a Jeff Bezos-backed fusion company here in Canada called General Fusion, and their long-term goal is to generate electricity for $0.07 a kilowatt hour with a 100-megawatt power plant using a technology that doesn't yet exist many years in the future. But again, solar is cheaper than that already today, especially at the utility rate, and wind is probably half as cheap again. And so it's difficult to see how these things will make a, a big impact in terms of solving the climate crisis, in terms of reinventing our energy systems, when we have the solutions today, which are cheaper than the incumbents, in many cases, even before factoring in you know social cost of pollution and things like that. And you know, like Kyle, I, I applaud the idealism of the of this research that Bill Gates is trying to initiate here. But like Jigger, I just and this isn't the first this isn't the first annoyed uh, response that Jigger has sent out to various announcements by Bill Gates. But uh, like Jigger, I can't help but agree with him that you know we need deployment, we don't need development. That's my mini rant on this breakthrough energy coalition here. Zachary.
0: Yeah, well, I really love, yeah, this is not Jigger's first response, he, and I, he's gotten more diplomatic. His, his initial responses to Bill Gates were a lot more, I guess, inflamed. But you brought up the list of people behind this, uh, and they're being all in the software industry. And I think it, it sort of implicates that there's a kind of echo chamber effect going on where somebody like Bill Gates thinks that he knows the cost of solar and wind or their capabilities based on research that's probably five years out of date, I don't know and thinks that nuclear has to be developed. And then he informs Zuckerberg, th- these other people in his traditional field, and they think that he's that he knows what he's talking about. Or I don't know if that's what happened, but it seems to be that's what's happening with this nuclear story, because you have this conglomeration of software people, you also have this group of climate scientists who are passionate about addressing climate change, but also have the same misconceived notion. And if you look at the price of solar or wind five to ten years ago, it would look like, oh, these aren't going to do the job. And if you look at claims five or ten years ago where they said, oh, you can only integrate 5%, and now people are claiming 30%. A grid operator in Germany who's specifically in charge of integrating renewables says that he can do 70% renewable integration without storage. So that's someone who knows what he's talking about, and it's clearly that they can do way more than 30%. But getting back to the costs, like you said, you know, Coal, nuclear, they're at like 8 cents if you don't count externalities. They're like at, you know, 20 cents or more if you count like decommissioning costs of nuclear or if you count the pollution costs of coal. But solar, utility-scale solar is already at 5 cents a kilowatt hour, which is below both of those even if you don't count their externalities. Wind, last year in the United States, the average was 3 cents a kilowatt hour or even under that. I don't see how... Anything is going to compete with these. I did a really in-depth piece for The Economist Group for their GE Look Ahead website where I interviewed a lot of solar researchers, and the projection is basically that solar costs are going to drop another 30% by 2030. So I mean, you basically have solar getting down to you know three to four cents. You have wind at, at two to three cents a kilowatt hour. The goals for nuclear for CCS carbon capture and storage for natural gas they can't even reach what what solar and wind are projected to to get to just with a learning curve with no breakthroughs. So I don't see how anyone who knows what what the story is today can think that there's a faster, better, cheaper approach than a heavily renewables-based system. So I just think they're basically working on outdated information and then that information is getting spread around to people and people trust you know others without knowing really what the data is. So I, I think that's my take on it. And uh, do either of you want to close out with Arnold Schwarzenegger's take?
1: I guess I could volunteer here then. Yeah, so we'd, we'd thrown this around in our prep for the episode and... I believe it was during the COP21 proceedings that Arnold Schwarzenegger mentioned that he didn't want to be the last investor in Blockbuster when Netflix started up, something to that effect. So basically, he didn't want to be investing in 20th century ideas in the 21st century. The thing is, you know, Bill Gates, you know, wonderful guy, great charitable work, but it seems like he only wants to invest in the 22nd century ideas here in the 21st century. And we can solve this, our issues with existing technology, with, with deployment, as opposed to you know, future developments. Kyle, do you have any last thoughts?
2: I think a big component of this is also mobility. So Jigar made the point about car sharing and how that's going to revolutionize transportation and the cost of transportation for a lot of folks. So it was a really neat angle on this as well. I mean, it's just building on that topic, just saying that the technology to solve these problems exists. Car sharing, we're already seeing that from Uber and Lyft. So I mean, we're, we're already seeing these revolutions happen today. They exist today. And the future for car sharing is just as bright as for solar. I and mean, We're looking at the future cost of car sharing being 75 percent cheaper than actually owning a car and that's that's especially true in cities and we're expecting to see and are already seeing to some degree populations migrating back to city centers so I think a lot of the ideas that were presented are, are extremely compelling uh, clean energy to me is the largest I think solar is amazing like you mentioned Zach those costs are ridiculous and the externalities both financially and environmentally for these clean technologies or these renewable technologies are so much lower if not even to the point where it's insignificant compared to the alternatives. so Very compelling arguments, and it's a great topic for us. This week's podcast is sponsored by Pono Home. Pono Home can make your home healthier while saving you money with a personalized in-home assessment that can immediately help reduce your utility bills, remove toxins from your home, and make you and your family more comfortable. Check them out at ponohome.com. That's P-O-N-O-H-O-M-E.com. All righty, well, that's it for us this week. These podcasts will be posted on cleantechnica.com and other great cleantech sites like evobsession.com and gas2.org. Please hop on to your favorite source for podcasts like iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe to us today. That way you can make sure to get your electric fix every week. Thanks again to my co-hosts, Zachary Shahan and Matthew Kippenstein, and please come back and join us next week.